Good morning. Welcome to another episode of Cybersecurity Amplified and Intensified with your host, Eric Taylor, myself, Shiva Maharaj. Today, we're joined by Alan Liska of Recorded Future. Alan, how's it going? Good. How are you all doing today? Eh, not too bad. Do you want right. to tell, give the people a little background on yourself? Uh, sure. So I am an old, uh, I've been in security for probably 20 years. Um, I got my start as a network jockey working, uh, for a company called Unit Technologies, which is now a part of Verizon. Um, did that for about seven years, then got laid off along with 23,000 of my closest friends when, um, WorldCom who owned us at the time committed what was then the largest financial fraud ever in the history of the world. Now it looks quaint in comparison to other financial fraud since then. Um, a buddy of mine, uh, was working for a company called Riptech, uh, which, uh, became Symantec and he offered me a job as a SOC analyst. Um, so I did that, uh, got recruited to go work, do government work for about a dozen years. Um, that was fun. Um, long days, uh, lots of travel to weird places and a whole lot of not being able to tell people what I did. Left that and went to go work for Symantec again, um, and then left there to go to iSight. iSight got acquired by FireEye. I did not love selling hardware, um, not selling, but being a sales engineer for hardware. So opportunity came up about five years ago to work, uh, at Recording Future as an analyst. And I've been doing that ever since. Dude, you just been passed around the world a little bit, haven't you? A little bit. Yeah. So, um, pretty much, uh. The reason I'm pretty sure Recorded Future hired me is every small company I've gone to work for has been acquired by a much bigger company. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've got that, uh, magic touch. I guess. You've got the luck. Right. Right. <laughs> I have a question for you, uh, without going to detail, of course, for your government service, how much cooler are their systems than what's, than what is commercially available? Not at all. Uh, really? you know, and it, there's some fun things that we were able to do. But I mean, really what you have at your, that works to your benefit is you have the entire apparatus of the U S government. Okay. Like I don't necessarily need to know, um, I don't necessarily need to know a super cool exploit or anything like that. If I have somebody that can tell me, oh yeah, this guy really likes to collect old guns. So if we send him a phishing email that has old guns, uh, you know, uh, old gun reviews or old gun for sales, he's going to click that. Like when you can build that kind of very specific profile, mm -hmm. um, it's a lot easier to do your job than, uh, than if you, um, are just trying to guess at what people like. Okay. Sorry, Eric's wife just, uh, Sorry, walked by but... the background. <laughs> so. I have this theory that we are, when I say we, people in the United States are very much unprepared to fight against ransomware. It's not that we can't, it's just that we are fundamentally unprepared and we don't put emphasis on the basics of cybersecurity. And that's why we are the low hanging fruit. How do you feel about that statement? I actually don't know that I agree with that because I think everybody in the world is unprepared to deal with ransomware. So it, the U S is just because we have more companies, we get more, we get targeted more. Um, 
Yeah, if you look at the two biggest countries in terms of ransomware distribution, um, it, it, at least you know according to what MCSoft sees um, from their ID ransomware project, uh, it's India and the U.S. Um, two countries very populous with lots of companies. Um, so I agree with the part of your statement that companies in general aren't prepared to deal with ransomware, but it feels like this is a worldwide problem. Um, and, and but there are some cultures like if you go to Japan or China, where even talking about ransomware, it's hard enough to get people to report in the U.S. and India, but in, in other countries, you know, even talking about the fact that you might have been hit with ransomware is completely taboo to discuss. And so we just don't see as much reporting that comes out of there. But anecdotally, companies in China and Japan are getting hit just as frequently as companies in India and the U.S. Well, see, I don't know if I really buy into that because... I mean, granted, I'm sure people in Japan, China, Russia, all these other facets are getting popped with ransomware and whatever exploit malware phishing attempts that you may want to, you know, drop on them. But I think the U S is mostly targeted at a much larger scale, just for the simple fact that the U S has more, um, gross profit to it. It's got the higher ability to pay out. So it's a much bigger target and. I mean, you see it, I'm sure just as well as I do, Alan, that a lot of these companies, they will literally say, I don't know why they will target me. I'm just a small company. And I'm like, they don't freaking care. You know, you're literally, I mean, I don't know how many different ways I can uh, freaking describe this. You're going down an interstate, you're seeing, you know, exits, I, AKA IP addresses that are potentially open. You're just going to swerve off to there and say, oh, what's over here. It's like you're cross country or go across country on a uh, sightseeing tour and you're just seeing what's out there. That's literally what these folks are doing short of running a showdown report. Right. And I'm going to show my East Coast bias here, but you have to know whether it's going to be a Wawa, a Sheets or a Royal Farms um, off that interstate because are you going to get chicken or are you going to get a sub or are you going to get tater tots? Um, you can get all three of Wawa from what I've found out. Right. But I mean, you know, the chicken at Royal Farms are way better than the, uh, than the, the, the than the chicken at, at Wawa. Let's be honest. I mean, I know we may have some Pennsylvania listeners that are going to take offense to that. They don't count. That's okay. Um, okay. Wawa's. We love you, children. Just, just to go <laughs> side rails, Wawa's all the way up there. Cause I'm from South Carolina. So we, my wife's family, well, some of them still live in Florida, but as soon as we get down into the Tampa and Clearwater area stuff, we start seeing Wawa. And I'm like, was this grocery store put together by a two year? We want to go to Wawa. <laughs> I'm not how I go Wawa. <laughs> I'm like, what the F is this store? Well, I don't know what it is about Pennsylvania, but I mean, Pennsylvania is home to Sheets and Wawa. And, you know, I don't know how one state could have come up with two of the most amazing convenience stores ever. Um, but yes, giving them both really bad names. Um, <laughs> I will say Wawa is a good store, but at first I'm like, what is this tree wreck? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the name leads a lot, lot to be desired. And you could say the same thing about sheets. I mean, that just sounds like somebody from the South cussing. Doesn't sound like the name of a, uh, the name of a convenience store. Oh, bless their heart. <laughs> I have a question for you, Alan. What exactly do you do over at Recorded Future? A lot of this, um, uh, so most of my time is spent in outreach, um, which means that, you know, I do podcasts, I do webinars, um, I do a lot of 
customer meetings. So, um, uh, uh, you know, people obviously have questions about ransomware. Here's how I can help. Um, I, you know, and then talk to professional organizations. Um, I've gotten, been lucky enough to been asked to talk to Congress people about ransomware, which has been really cool. I've never been called to testify, thankfully. Uh, have, do but, they even uh, understand what's coming out of your mouth or are they just sitting there attentively listening, pretending to understand? So, so let's, let's be clear. I don't talk to Congress people directly. I talk to their staffers and generally speaking, the staffers that reach out to me actually know what they're talking about. And then their job is to translate what I've said to Congress people in a way that they can understand. Uh, I don't think the translation works very well to be <laughs> I, I mean, we are seeing some bills, uh, you know, I've, I've actually been kind of impressed that we are seeing some bills that include funding for cybersecurity protection. Now, having the funding and then implementing it the right way are two very, very, very different things, but at least we're making some sort of progress. Well, let's dive down that because you know, not too long ago, Biden had, you know, the whole big four, Apple, Microsoft, Google, and I forget the other company. I'm still upset they didn't invite me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but they had them in there to discuss cybersecurity for a nation state act uh, thing. You know, no offense at Google, but, you know, they are not DFAR compliant. They are not, you know, they, you can't go DOD in any facet with Google. So why they're even there to begin with, I don't know. But whatever, you know, more to the table, I guess. But the, what have you been seeing? Because since that meeting, it seems all pretty quiet. Are you seeing the same thing where, you know, they're talking about doing cybersecurity, but nothing has really come out except for a couple of mentions about NIST 800-171, that self-assertation that's been around for a metric F ton and really has no weight or value at all. Right. Um, well, so this did release their, like their ransomware readiness, um, project, which was actually, oh, God. I know, I know. Um, I mean, but it, it's, it's not that it's wrong. It's just people don't necessarily implement it. What I'll say from what I've seen is, yeah, there's been a whole lot of talk at the government level, which talk doesn't equal action, but we have seen 10 law enforcement actions taken against ransomware actors this year. Yep. That's more than we've seen in the last five years combined. Now, right now it's whack-a-mole, right? You, you take one down, two more pop up. So mm. it's not having that effect, but I like the fact that at least if nothing else, law enforcement feels like they're more empowered to take whatever action is up to and including, Hey, we're going to hack into rebel servers and, and take those bad boys offline. Um, we need that kind of thinking on law enforcement's part, because as much as we need to tell people how to defend themselves and people need to take action to defend themselves, going back to Shiva's original question, it's not going to do any good if we don't have law enforcement action on the other end, trying to stop these guys, because they're just going to find new and creative ways to gain access to networks. Well, see, here's a lot of the biggest problems that I see, especially in IR. So, you know, a lot of folks will come and be like, well, can we contact the FBI? Sure. <laughs> Knock yourself out. Let me just tell you what's going to happen so you can prepare when you deal with the FBI. They are going to do one of two things. They're either going to take a bunch of samples, ask you a metric F ton of questions and say, okay, we'll get back to you because your local FBI office will just be a broker. The, where whoever reports that first ransomware case is the quote unquote hub or central location in the FBI for all of that stuff. So. 
you know, in my state of South Carolina, Columbia office will be the hub for and broker that communication to whatever the end FBI agency is. Or they're going to do the other thing. You're going to be very new to this ransomware case where they don't have a lot of stuff. They're going to come in and seize everything. And now you're left holding the bag, so to speak, wondering what the F you do now, because now you have no servers, you have no hardware, you have no firewall. Your business is in crumbles even worse than what you even got started with. So yeah, by all means, please talk to them and make your life worse. Or we just let them know, hey, we're working on it. Let us know what information you need. We'll pass along that information. But you know, there's, oh my gosh, I really wish companies would start adopting communications with an IR firm in their disaster recovery or business continuity or whatever vernacular you want to use nowadays, because, you know, we've seen on, you know, even Reddit, even though Reddit seems to be a dumpster fire of the stupid lately, uh, with some of the people who put things out there, but you know, everybody needs an avenue of communication, I guess, um, where you have a complete ransomware breach, the IT person Again, this is third party, maybe even fourth party communication, but they just went in there, nuked everything, restored from backup, and then went, went along their way. What's wrong with that? Well, don't get mad. So to some degree. <laughs> I like triggering him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is probably going to be one of the most episodes you'll see me talk in a while. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, but to some degree, kudos to the IT person. They got the business back up and running, but. Did they really see, you know, how far back did they go to restore that data? Was there, I mean, I, Alan, you can testify a lot, even Reevil, Conti, uh, Black Matter, they, they'll sit in your network for two weeks. They have scheduled tasks that run that will go to GitHub and download stuff. So if you're not looking for that persistence in about 48 hours, your shit's broke again. Right. I mean, isn't that the stat that's, um, that, uh, uh, and I apologize. I don't remember who gave it, but something like 80% of victims who don't pay get hit with ransomware again within a couple of weeks. And yep. for that exact reason, you don't find the initial access, you, you know, the, the initial access factor. So whether that was a compromised exposed internet server, credential reuse, um, phishing email, whatever it was. You don't find that. And then you don't find the scripts that they left running. Um, and so you restore those PowerShell scripts or those loaders and then bam, you get hit again, or worse, you get hit by a different ransomware group who then once everything's restored sees, oh, hey, there's this vulnerable system I can now hit. Um, and, and, and that is, that is a real problem. And to your point, I think too many organizations think that they can handle recovery themselves mm -hmm. until they get in the middle of it. And then by then, sometimes it's too late to find a decent IR firm, right? You know, because I'm sure you are incredibly backed up Eric, this year, uh, cause you're really good at what you do. Um, and, and, and you're all of the really good IR firms I know right now are just swamped with ransomware mm -hmm. cases. And so the, you know, trying to find one that can come and help you now when you need it, you're either going to pay an arm and a leg, 
or you're going to wind up with one of the less skilled firms and mm-hmm. still pay an arm and a leg for, you know, not great recovery. So like I tell people, get that IR contract in place before you have a ransomware attack, get that retainer in place, even if it's more of the $0 retainer contracts, just so you have that relationship, you have yep. the, the paperwork all filled out and you have that, that sort of great glass emergency number to call. I like that. I really do. I mean, that was going to be my question is how does that, what does that look like? But it just sounds like you're retaining an attorney for everyday life, basically. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 you know, Eric will know more about how that works. I do, but I mean, the, you've, you've signed the contract, getting the legal paperwork out of the way is such a big hassle because even I've seen this, even in the middle of a ransomware attack where the attorneys step in, like, oh no, we have to do these red lines. Like, dude. You're losing millions of dollars a day, uh, uh, conducting red lines and I get you're an attorney, you have to do that, but you know, having all of that done ahead of time is going to save you so much time and you're, there's going to be things that your IT and even your security team will miss because they're not used to dealing with ransomware attacks. Even if you've tabletop exercised it, which I highly recommend as well. Yep. You're still going to miss things because you're probably not dealing with the most recent information on ransomware attacks. Yeah. And I mean, all to your point, I, not all IR cases are the same by any means, right? And I mean, take the business industry vertical that they're in, just take that out of the picture altogether. But, you know, is, is there, is there a legal firm involved or not that dictates, dictates how we engage things? You know, are we going to be able to work under attorney client privilege? Is it? You know, how is that communication going to work? Is this part of an insurance claim? Does that insurance policy have a, a, a quote unquote panel assigned to it? If it does, then, you know, we got to get with a different person that may be part of panel. Maybe we work with them. Maybe we just do a gentle handoff to like Kroll or Coveware or something like that. You know, that's a part of those bigger panels. Um, but that is it. You, you got to be able to have these communications. You know, and this is really what I was like, look, even though it'll fill up my calendar to have a bunch of these conversations, I would much rather have these conversations all the time and say, look, what does your insurance package look like? Okay. Your insurance does not have a panel. Okay. There's pros and cons to that, but let's explore that. Let's get you with maybe a legal person to, you know, make sure you're, you're legally covered in certain things, you know, cause you know, we can have a whole nother song segment, I'm sure about, you know, what's covered, what's not covered under, you know, insurance. Nothing's going to be covered pretty soon. (laughs) And that's not wrong, unfortunately. Yeah. No, I mean, RMM is going to be attacked here real soon. I mean, what are your thoughts on RMM, Alan? Uh, like the Kaseas, the Dados, so, uh, enable, you know, I think this is an industry that's gotten away too long without a lot of scrutiny. Um, you know, murder. I'm sorry, murder. <laughs> that, that, that there's a, there's not a lot of security built into these tools because they're not considered security tools, even though effectively that's what they've become. And so, you know, we know ransomware actors are targeting them, not just with the Senia, but other tools as well. Um, and they're a great tool for deploying ransomware. Um, that, uh, for a whole lot of reasons, and we need to look into 
how these companies can better secure their platforms. Um, I, I mean, we, we can't, but there needs to be some industry standard that I don't think is there yet. Yeah. I mean, for those who d understand it or may not understand it, this is a paid software that is a command and control application. You know, these are applications that sit on individual workstations that beacon and communicate back to a central server and say, hi, I'm here. What's next for me to do? Oh, please fuck up this workstation for me. Right. You know, um, and we pay them to do that for us. Right. And, and, and there are a few things in there, you know, like in the case of the Gaseya attack, where a lot of these RMM tools say, yeah, don't have your security tools scan the network where I, oh gosh, yes, yes. Right. Um, you know, so that's perfect for a ransomware actor. And then the other thing is a lot of them have web facing consoles, right? Um, and so again, if you're a ransomware actor and you're conducting scans, you may be able to find these sitting out there on the network. If you find the vulnerability uh, as they did in the case of Kaseya, or sometimes just figure out a credential reuse attack against the platform itself, you now have access to all of these different customers. So it's a huge, huge problem. One that ransomware actors are actively working on, but not one that we are actively working on securing. We generally, not the three of us, but we generally is the security community. But the so vendors they're, say they're completely secure. Should we just believe them and go on our way? I'm out. <laughs> but, you know, we talked about, you know, security a little bit. I want to get your input on this one because, you know, barring away from C, uh, CMMC, you know, even though enable and a lot of these, you know, MSP tools, we'd be like, all MSPs must be CMMC. Please shut the F up. You know, they're not, these MSPs are not doing DOD and they're not prime. They're not going to be any, most of them are not even going to be anywhere near the, you know, the subcontractor prime chain, they're not going to be impacted by this. So, you know, barring NIST 800-171, you know, maybe a higher level for businesses to go. I personally think that the CIS or the SANS top 20 would be an excellent must have for any and all small business or any business to at least do as a, if you're going to run a business in America, you must adhere to these standards. I think it's a great entryway. What do you think about that or some other control being a must have for businesses? Yeah. I mean, there needs to be some sort of, and, and I don't know how you do this, right? You, we in security don't like government regulation. Um, and some things slow for technology, don't you think? I'm sorry. Government regulation is too slow for the pace at which technology moves today. Well, but he, so here's the thing. And I think to Eric's point, the SANS top 20 has been a really good standard for a while now. We haven't come up with anything better and, and, and yet we still haven't mastered that. Right. I, I don't know there. Do you know how long SANS has been around? I think it's been about a decade now. Yeah. About that. Yeah. Um, and, and we still even haven't mastered that. So, I mean, if the government were to say tomorrow, if you operate a business, you must follow the SANS top 20, that is going to be good for a while because that, you know, the ransomware actors just literally need to go down the top 20 and find the vulnerabilities they need to find. So if you're adhering to that top 20, you're going to keep out a whole lot of the bad guys. So I can keep out all of them, not, not even close, but you will keep out the low hanging fruit. You're going to make it much more expensive for someone to carry out a ransomware attack or any kind of cyber attack. 
Um, so from that perspective, yes. But again, I know that nobody really likes to say, all right, the government says you have to do these things. And so, you know, if you want to operate a business, you have to be compliant with these. Yeah. But it, so to touch on that, I, I understand the government regulation and everything, but you know, from a recorded future, or if you can't say that, that's fine, but an Allen's perspective, what would you like to firstly see as a potential entry level barrier to start a business? What, what do you personally like as a security framework? So, I mean, I think the top 20 is a good security framework. I mean, you know, I, I, I have preached for years that for a lot of companies, if you want to keep out ransomware or whatever, if you just did good asset management, both internal and external, good vulnerability management and had regular real phishing training, you would stop about 80% of, of ransomware attacks. Now add in identity management, um, so that, you know, if you're, you're looking for credentials being dumped on dark web markets and forcing you know, enforcing people to change passwords and making sure you're deleting accounts when people leave, you, 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 you'd close that gap even more. Um, but we haven't even gotten that right. Most businesses haven't gotten those basics right before kind of going to the next level. Like, you know, and, and, and part of that is it's not sexy, right? Like yeah. if, if I go and I put together this really cool threat hunting presentation, RSA and Black Hat are going to bend over backwards to invite me to come give a talk. If I put together a presentation on how good asset management will help you protect yourself, no one cares because we all know that we all accept that we're still just not doing it. Exactly. Now, going back to the expense of ransomware, what do you, I'm not IR. I'm just an IT guy that thinks he knows what he's doing. So what if the government were to ban ransom payments? So what would happen if you ban ransom payments is somebody would figure out how to make ransom payments and then you'd have extra extortion on the top of it because then the ransomware office would threaten to go to the government saying- Is that hey, like the NRA being delisted from the ransomware from Grief's website? Well, remember, the, the, so the NRA is back now. Oh, they okay. Yeah, so they, they, they got back this morning, but I think that's a fairly common tactic. Um, it, well, it is a fairly common tactic. So what happens is you get listed, a negotiator reaches out, they take you off the list, negotiations break down fairly quickly, they put you back on the list. Mm -hmm. um, so so I, 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 don't, I wouldn't take that as a sign that they paid or didn't pay. I, I don't think we have enough insight. Just gamesmanship? Right, exactly. Um, so I don't think people should pay a ransom. Just you know, flat out, you shouldn't pay a ransom. But I think if you ban it, they're going to find ways to pay anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when they find ways to pay the ransomware actors, we're already seeing an expansion of the extortion ecosystem. Um, uh, uh, as it is, that will just be added to the list where you made a ransom payment. They're going to come back in six months and say, oh, hey, um, you paid a ransom. That's illegal. You're a U.S. business. Um, we're going to report you to the government if you don't pay us an additional uh, grants. So we're basically damned if we do and damned if we don't in terms of making ransomware payments illegal. Right. I mean, unless you want to kill Bitcoin, uh, I mean, good luck with <laughs> good luck with Yeah. I think Bitcoin, I think crypto's here to stay. Yeah. That's not going anywhere. Um, go ahead. Uh, I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit. So, all right. If you wanted to 
ban cryptocurrency, what would that look like? Ban ransomware payment. You know, there's too many private wallets that a lot of those IR firms have established. You know, there are things that are called tumblers. We're able to hide it. You know, we're in cybersecurity for God's sake. We know how to hide some of this crap, but you know, let's just take a very hot political topic if we will banning guns, gun-free zones. All right. Just because you put up, this is a gun-free zone in front of a school. Has that ever hundred percent stopped gun shooting? No, just because you ban something does not mean it's going to stop. It's going to still happen. Well, it stopped the import of uh, narcotics and cocaine. What are you talking about? Oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Here we go. There's my one F bomb for the day. <laughs> Alan, with all the IR that you've seen, have you come across the bad guys using compliancy sets and security frameworks to create targeting packages? Not that I've seen other than I know like grief ransomware has a GDPR statement on their website. Um, but, uh, you know, green grief ransomware is just like every other person on Twitter where they think they're GDPR experts. Um, so I haven't seen the bad guys using compliance frameworks, but that's my view. And one of, one of the problems in general, I think with ransomware attacks is because so few actual ransomware attacks get reported. Um, you know, we know about 2,200 ransomware attacks because that's how many have made it to extortion sites. The real number is much larger. Um, and, and most of those we don't find out about. So my view is limited to the handful that I help out on IR a year. Um, and, and, and I haven't seen that. Eric, you probably have a different view than I do. I mean, I haven't seen a... I haven't seen a threat actor actually attack a framework per se. I have seen threat actors take a certain framework. I mean, we kind of seen that with the Conti release, you know, they did, they have a framework, they have their, you know, SOPs or whatever you want to call it, you know, but they're, they have better documentation than most MSPs. Well, we won't go on that conversation, All right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they're just looking for that low hanging fruit. You know, they're looking for, you know, People need to understand when, all right, so let me just take a step back. So granted me and Alan and folks like us that are in IR and we are just engulfed in this, we are on the tour sites. We're looking at who got popped. We're looking at this. We're looking at that, you know, what data was leaked and all that, you know, we kind of get a kick off that kind of stuff, guys. So, but me and Shiva actually found something pretty clever or not clever, but we started seeing something because toward the beginning of this year and some of last year, really when I started getting heavy into IR, I thought it was kind of cool. It was like, oh, look, these guys got popped. Oh, look, those guys got popped. Protect yourselves. Don't be like them. You know, trying to drive more business into us. It didn't drive a single thing. You know, it, we've said it on the podcast before and people who listen will get, it's like, oh God, but you know. When you're a technologist and I use that for M the technologist phrase for MSP, just so you know, Alan, but you know, when you're a technologist and you go to a prospect that's in the medical field and you say, well, you gotta be HIPAA compliant. It's like, you know, <laughs> you know, they didn't it has no let's be yes, that it doesn't. So when you go in there and like ransomware, uh, you know, everybody's so numb. They're just like, I think they're uh, 
Oh, would you say the general public has become desensitized to the term ransomware because it's all they see, it's all they hear, I think and so. they see people recover in air quotes for those listening. So they're like, okay, it is what it is. It's going to happen. We'll move on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just broadly speaking, you know, I was discussing this with our marketing department. So we're going to do, uh, you know, ransomware webinar for the fourth quarter. Um, because we've done one every quarter and they're like, well, what can we cover that nobody's covered? I'm like, not really. There's not really anything like, you know, because everybody is doing ransomware webinars. Everybody's getting invited to dozens of ransomware webinars mm -hmm. come on. Um, there's not something in there that is that, that, that we have that is unique and interesting that's not being covered by a dozen other people um you know the only thing that we can do different is we can cuss on our webinars um uh you know we, we can do a threat hunting webinar but so can crowdstrike so can mandy and so can everybody else mm -hmm. uh you know i've recommended hey we could do a back to basics webinar like you know here are the basics you need to do um you know which are the things we talked about and everybody's like give yeah, it that's boring i'm like i know but it's they're still not doing it. Um, yeah. so I think that is your point is accurate. We're inundated with web with, with, you know, information about ransomware, everything, everybody needs to protect themselves is out there. There's a lack of will to do it. I mean, just the most basic thing I, I go on webinars all the time and I say, Hey, do this, shut down macros. Don't, don't enable macros on your Microsoft office documents. I've never met anybody who uses macros that I like anyway. And then there are a whole bunch of people that get mad at me because like I use macros, I need it for my job. Screw you. No, you don't. Um, the financial sector will hate you. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but I mean, it's one of those simple, basic things that for five years, we've known ransomware actors and other cyber criminals love to use macros. And yet we can't get that shut down. I know with the next release of Excel, Microsoft's going to turn them off by, by default, which is great. I appreciate that. They're going to get turned right back on into organizations or, you know, organizations will already have them turned on. We shut macros down for all of our clients two years ago. Nice. To the Very point helpful. where if you want macros, I am not the droid you're looking for. <laughs> I've lost business because I refuse to turn them back on. I refuse to allow USB devices, uh, well, USB drives and everything from speakers to printers have to be manually approved with our USB control across all of our clients. But you mentioned something, and this is a little conversation Eric and I have been having since we started doing this podcast in March. I always want to do a security basics, but you're right. It's not sexy. We pen it out. We get the outline and it's boring as fuck. But if you guys did a back to cybersecurity basics or back to basics webinar that focused on hygiene of cleaning up your asset management, cleaning up everything. I think it may not be sexy. Not many people show up, but I think it'll help more than the typical high-flying sexy webinars. Well, see, I want to be sure to go ahead, Al. I was going to say, maybe the three of us dressed up like Marilyn Monroe, and then we did a back to basics, uh, webinar, then that would work. Um, that, they then don't have the lights. <laughs> We, we, we'd be sexy and we'd be talking about the basics. So that would be the way that we could make back the basics, um, sexy again. Those who are on the video, they'll see me doing, you know, hacker look now, but anyway. <laughs>
No, but seriously, like, I feel like there's a list of maybe a dozen things every IT person should be doing for their operating environment. And if you can master those and just rinse and repeat those dozen or so things, and for the trolls out there, yes, there may be more than a dozen, mm. but just it's, it's about repetition and getting better at what you do and the basics. And as you said earlier, it will raise the cost of the ransomware guys to operate and get into your environment. And that's going to frustrate them more than anything else. Laws aren't going to do anything. We had the executive order, which a lot of it I agree with. I just don't think they're going to hit any of their timeframes and it's not going to, it's not going to raise the game for us. You know what, Alan, stay sitting here thinking about this and maybe this is something that, you know, we could partner up with, or we can, you know, help get cross strike and you know, the whole recorded future, or if it's just you and me doing this, but I think somebody like us, if not us start, instead of doing security hygiene start and, and all this boring stuff since we both like the sand stop 20 how about just starting to do like hey in sand stop 20 we're going to start doing we're going to start doing a mind dump of all these damn fucking controls it is how you start implementing it into your business you know and i think maybe instead of talking about the problem we start talking about an actual solution that is non-sales in a way. I mean, granted, we want people to come to record a feature. You must buy their intelligence. You have to. <laughs> Wait, you know, everyone at Recorder of Future will tell you I'm the worst salesperson for the company ever because I forget to mention. Uh, so he is the best salesperson because he probably sells the most because he's not trying. <laughs> but, but I like that idea a lot. What I if you did a webinar on the implementation of the controls? So they yeah, that's see what, what you're doing. Yeah. Like to me, how many IT practice, sorry, I'm too old <laughs> in this industry. I come from a time when you actually needed to know what you were doing and not be able to go onto YouTube to figure it out. But that's the generation you're dealing with. Like we're going to, I'm going to die soon. Right. I'm old, not that old, but I'm old enough to die. But that's how these guys learn. They want to see it on YouTube. They want you to show them how to enable MFA because they're absolute morons otherwise. And I think that would be really cool and make it a series. So yeah, I think, you know, when you got YouTube and you talk about all that, you know, I mean, I've been talking about this for a little bit now, but when you start going to companies like SANS and doing digital forensics classes, <laughs> this is why this shit's so damn expensive. <laughs> you, you know, and one thing that is interesting though, and we kind of have to take this into account when, when we're doing this and, and, and something that I think a lot of the advice that's out there that, that we have does, doesn't really take into account is the, that this takes time, especially for medium and large companies. So yeah. like, it's easy for us to say, okay, you need to do asset management. Well, we know that asset management is a minimum of a six month project and probably closer to a year. Because if you're not doing asset management now, you have to have three vendors come in, right? You have mm -hmm. to do your POCs. Then you have to get the budget approved. Then you have to buy it. Then you have to actually implement it, right? And that's just one of those things that we're talking about. Same thing, multi-factor authentication. We can say you should enable multi-factor authentication and you absolutely should. Okay, so I've got to bring in Opta. I've got to bring in Google. I've got to test all these different solutions out. 
I have to, again, get the budget for that to do this. I can't do both at once because I'm not going to get the budget for asset management and MFA in the same fiscal year. That's, that's a one-year project than the next year project. So, you know, what we talk about, unless we can talk about things that here are things that you can implement that aren't going to cost money. Um, they're going to cost you time. Those are going to cost you labor. You're going to have to figure that out. But uh, unless we can really start with the things that are like, here's what you can do where you're not going to have to go get budget or try and get more personnel that, that then, then what we're talking about are often three-year projects, even though they shouldn't. I have a thought on that because just taking what you said, asset management and MFA, they're built into a lot of the Microsoft platform, uh, 365 platform. So it can be done there. It's built into, uh, the Google stuff. I'm not a Google person. So. Sorry. Well, 2FA, the, uh, TOTPS for the Google Authenticator, it's not a real MFA, but. But 365 as your IDP, because that's all I deal with. I don't deal with anything else. Um, to me, they don't exist. <laughs> yes. Give me discounts, please. But we, I use CrowdStrike across the board and they have their discover platform, which will do your asset management. They have spotlight, which will give you vulnerability management and what have you. So I think the things are there. And if you look at what Microsoft is doing with their Defender platform, a lot of those functionalities are there for asset management and vulnerabilities. So these are things, as you said, it just takes the time and the effort. Right. And a lot of these people, I think in corporate and enterprise, don't understand that they probably have the tools already because it, they needed it to check a checkbox somewhere for compliance. So maybe do something about do an exploratory project and see what tools your company already owns and how you can leverage it. Maybe that's a way to help move it forward. You kind of drove that a little bit. You know, I just want to touch on this because Alan's mentioned it. You've kind of bolted on top of it, Shivan. I think I mentioned it either in last episode or the episode before that, but you know, we was talking about the, the CISO podcast, but leveraging a technology to fix a problem versus buying a technology to hopefully fix something. You've got so a shiny. problem and you're trying to find a technology to fix that problem. Yeah. Cause I said it wrong the first time. So let me reset. So you have a problem. You're trying to find a technology to solve that problem instead of buying a technology and trying to find what problems it can fix. You need to flip this thing on its head, you know? So, and I think a company is going through and yeah, you know, we've seen this before when we start taking client prospects and the clients and we start talking to them about the CS top 20 and we start looking and it's like, okay, this is the control. Now well, you're going to list out every last effing one of your applications that you use, every piece of hardware you use, how does it apply? How does it not apply? You know, and start looking at different alternatives to get that. We find our businesses will start finding, holy crap, we have a lot of bloat applications that we can cut out because it's just not needed. Yeah. Shelfware. I mean, that's a real cannibal in the enterprise, I would think. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many companies I've walked into that have sore that they purchased a year or more ago that they haven't implemented yet because mm -hmm. they haven't had the time, they haven't had the effort, but I like your point and I, I've made the similar point, Shib, of where a lot of times you actually have the protections you need in place. You're already paying for it. You just haven't enabled it. So what I've encouraged people and it, weirdly, I get some pushback that some people don't like this, 
but, um, what I've encouraged people to do is have your salesperson for all of your security vendors and, and their sales engineer come out, buy you lunch, or if you can swing it, buy you dinner for your whole team, mm -hmm. make sure you get a few good bottles of wine and tell them, Hey, what, what do we have? What do we not have enabled that we can enable in our existing product? One, what do we have that we can enable that's not going to cost us money? And what is going to cost us money? Just so we know what they are. And then, you know, have your, you know, have your sales engineer, because most sales engineers will do this, do an audit of what you have enabled and what you haven't enabled and what you can enable without spending more money. And I find this is a really powerful tool because I think to both your points, you uncover that you have a whole lot of things in place that could help protect you from ransomware that you're just not aware of. Yeah, 100%. I think it all starts with finding what you've already purchased. Right. So, now, there is one question that I did want to ask you. Are you familiar with Alan Alford and his podcast, The Cyber Ranch? No, I'm not. I'm sorry. He had a gentleman on by the name of Eric Block. And paraphrasing, he spent a lot of time developing SIM platforms and products for many other vendors. Now he works for a company called Sprinkler here in uh, New York City. And he started... Maybe he's the creator or coined the term distributed IR. Yeah. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. Sorry. It's basically getting rid of the SIM and the SOC and letting your tools do the alerting. Because most times, if you, let's say you're using CrowdStrike and you're feeding it to a SOC, CrowdStrike's going to alert you on what the problem is. Your SOC's going to alert you on what the problem is. Now you have alert fatigue. So let all the tools alert you and your internal IT as to what you need, and then you get actionable on it. So it's distributed. So like you'll have your knock instead of processing, you know, from four to client or four to SIM, I should say, uh, you know, processing all that stuff, processing elk stack, doing all this stuff, and then trying to find all that stuff, letting a third party do it and say, okay, here's vulnerability. This is what it means. And this is what it's impacting. It's like, okay, now your socks like, okay, this is a developer issue. Oh no, this is an IT issue. And being a middleman broker, really what, what we're talking about here and being, you know, distributive incident response. So your, your security team is distributing the alerts to the affected departments to do that. The problem, why I love it. And the more and more I've been thinking about it and Shiva just hit on this point that we see, even when our, we're doing penetration testing, you know, we just got done finishing one for one in Oregon and you know, ConnectWise partner, and we hammered their automate server. We hammered six other servers that they have. Not one single call. Hey, will you please stop brute forcing our freaking server? <laughs> you know, so while yes, you'll have alert fatigue, but if you don't have anybody monitoring the alerts, you know, there's, there's no, no alert fatigue to have. So. I think we really need to, you know, kind of really enforce to make sure people are actually looking at these freaking alerts. So, right. Yeah. So my only concern about that would be kind of like what happened with target, right? Where in 2013 target got hit with largest credit card theft ever at the time, FireEye had alerted on that, but nobody was looking at the FireEye console. Mm -hmm. Um, I like the idea a lot because I think too much is sent to the SIM and even things that aren't necessarily needed are sent to the SIM. Like 
I've been in socks where physical security logs are sent to the stem, but the, the sock doesn't have any ability to deal with, with that data. So they, as you say, that leads to a lot of alert fatigue. And sometimes you have that really specific alert in that specific tool, but you have to figure out, we don't want any swivel chairs, right? Where this, this tie have to be in this console, this console, this console, and this console. I mean, we already have too many tabs open as it is trying to get our, our job done daily. How do you do that and make sure that you're not missing any alerts that occur in any of the other platforms? Yep. It's a really good conversation to have. I try to figure out and, you know, try to dive down into it. But, uh, with that, I want to be respectful of your time, Alan. Thank you so much for coming on. If anybody wants to get in touch with Alan or with you or, you know, your team at Record of Futures, how would they reach out to you, sir? Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter at UUAllen, U-U-A-L-L-A-N, um, or just send me an email to Alan at recordfuture.com. I'm happy to answer any questions I can. I'd love to do this again. Um, if y'all want to have me back, uh, this was a lot of fun. I want to explore the webinar series on the unsexy cybersecurity basics. Yeah, I think me and Alan's got something coming here soon. I'll tell you what. Yeah, hit me up and we'll find some time to do it. You know, I mean, after after Thanksgiving, nobody wants me anymore because there are no webinars until, you know, until January. We're going every week, even if it's Christmas Day. <laughs> Perfect. Let's find some time to do it. That'd be awesome. It's a real pleasure talking to y'all. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We really appreciate you uh, joining us on another episode. If you found this thing valuable, please, please, please share it with somebody. We want to spread the word. Please go to amplifiedandintensified.com. You'll see the audio recording. You will see the YouTube links. You'll see the link to Shiva's page so you can be able to start looking at him and some of his service offerings. You know, and if you have any questions, just send us an email, info at amplifiedandintensified.com. And until next week, y'all take care of yourselves.